This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Kalua Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Cobblest from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is Lee Smith from Data Center LA area in Northern Virginia. Hello to everybody. Lee, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. And for starters, I want to thank you for spending time with us and coming on board as one of our ambassadors, especially leading the education initiative. Before we get started, could you tell a little bit about yourself? What are you up to these days to our listeners? Well, I'm currently a principal consultant. I double in the space of helping organizations and clients to figure out their roads forward with regards to a number of things, data center, business continuity, cyber resilience, all of that kind of stuff. And then also strategy and operational alignment, amongst other things. Keeps me occupied on a daily basis, keeps the mind active. And yeah, that's basically what I do in a nutshell. Wonderful. So for those who don't know Lee Smith, Lee and I have actually known each other for a few years now, and we do get along just fine, even though he's South African. The foundational piece of the relationship really is because of cricket. Lee, when did you move to the U.S. full-time? We came across in 2018. That's when we moved across full-time myself, my wife, and our youngest daughter. We arrived in Northern Virginia at that time. You seem to pick up language really quickly. Congratulations. Oh, I don't even know what you mean by this. Um, <laughs> no, I can understand what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Oh, well, I still, I still say water, not water. Yeah, there's no but water. You, but you can say water. So I guess that's something good. So, Lee, how did you get started in the industry? I see that your educational background is in strategic marketing and economics. Now, that doesn't really have much to do with the space from an outside perspective looking in or even generally speaking from an industrial point of view, how did you get engaged? In As this a little business? boy in South Africa, did you want to be a principal data center consultant? Was that your Oh, name? he's like, no, I wanted to be a lawyer. But we won't talk about that. Actually, what happened, Melbiel, is my field of study was actually more after I got into the data center industry, just to broaden my understanding of what influences the data center industry as a whole. Actually, Lots of the people that you talk to, and I'm sure that on your podcast I've listened in the past, they sort of stumble into the data center environment. I was more direct. I wanted to go into the data center environment, but I didn't know it at the time. When I left the South African Defense Force and I was looking for a job, I was going to be appointed as a process controller at a large petrochemical organization in South Africa. And I walked through this massive plant, trying to figure out what was going on, looked at all these pipes, valves, pressure gauges, and I wasn't too excited about it. So I just asked the HR guy, is there anything maybe in computers that you could show me? And he found one of the senior managers at that point in time, and I went and sat and talked to them. And they took me downstairs to what they called was their computer room. And I walked into the computer room, and there was this big box of tape reeled tape machines and printer boxes and it was just noisy and cold and 
there were two guys running around loading printer paper and date reels and all of that. And I just knew, just, I just knew. I looked at the guy and I said, I got to do this job. I have to do this. And the guy said, okay, but it like pays like a lot less than what a process controller would get in the plant. And I said, I don't care. I just know this is where I belong. And that's how I started as a trainee computer operator, loading tape reels and printer paper. And then went into IBM mainframes and network software and network software engineering and network architecture. Then internet, internet services, internet solutions, firewalls, Unix, all that kind of stuff. And worked my way through so many aspects of the data center and digital infrastructure environment until 2008 when I found myself being asked to join a design team to build what would eventually become the first tier four data center, uptime certified tier four data center of the Southern Hemisphere. And I'm very proud of that. So my decision was to direct the path that I've, and the journey that I've taken since is just unbelievable. If you told me then, that I'd be sitting talking to you two crazy dudes right now, talking about my journey <laughs> back and all of these years. It, it, my guess is you would have you would have taken the process controller job. I um, would have started flicking shells <laughs> and taking <laughs> pressure gauges. Oh my God, those pressure gauges. How I miss you. <laughs> what made you ask the question to see, like, do you have anything in computers? Was there something about computers in your path, in your childhood during the defense stint? Yes, there was. Actually, when my father heard I wanted to study law in high school, he was not too enamored with that. I don't know why. Maybe he had a run-in with a lawyer or something somewhere in some stage. And one day I got home, I was in like, I don't know, high school, mid-high school. And I found this big box on my bed, in my bedroom. And I opened it up and it was a Commodore 64 mini computer in those days. And I opened it up and I looked at this thing and I thought, what the heck was that? And then I started reading the book and but that was a Friday and I'll never forget it. And the next morning at five o'clock was five, my mother came walking into the room and said, When are you going to bed? And I had been working on this thing, writing these little basic programs and I just took an immediate liking to this fascinating environment of what it offered. It was just that you could write your own things, do your own things, tell the computer to do stuff. I found it completely amazing. Was it your father that left that box in your bed to try to talk you out of becoming a lawyer? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and thanks to his, I don't know, his inside or desperation, if you want to call it, here I am today. So that is actually what led me to ask that question when I got to that job opportunity to ask if there's anything on e computers. And much of my career sometimes was just taking a flyer and asking a question and say, could we do this or can we do that or what about this? So, yeah, that's actually how it came about. Was your dad involved in technology at all? Like, what was his profession, just out of curiosity? Oh, he was an electrician, strangely enough, a qualified electrician, and he worked for the provincial government in South Africa at that stage. So he was a what they called a works inspector at school. So he went to school to make sure that the work that was being done on the buildings, et cetera, was being done correctly according to budget. So he had no exposure to IT or computers in those days. He had a Casio calculator and a freaking typewriter. And that was basically it. And that was his exposure to technology. The thought of him putting that thing in my room that day and, and opening up this world for me was 
I don't know, it was completely left field for him. Absolutely. That's, that's amazing. Any other siblings, Lee? Yeah, I've got an older sister who still lives in South Africa, and I've got two brothers. The one lives in London, and the other one actually lives in Auckland, New Zealand. So we always joke and say we dislike each other so much. We literally picked four corners of the world to stay as far from each other as possible. <laughs> or you like each other so much, now we've got four places to visit. Exactly. Definitely. So yeah, I've got... And my folks are still alive. They live in a surfing town called Jeffreys Bay in South Africa, which is very well known as a surfing mecca for international people who like surfing. Also, yeah. Any other technologists in the family? Have they all gone separate ways, the siblings? Oh, no, they've all gone their separate ways. My brother is a marine mechanic on boats. My youngest brother is in the transport industry, in the rail industry in London. And my sister works for a non-profit organization just outside of Johannesburg to help lesser privileged kids and people with their hearing disabilities. So completely diverse, completely diverse. Just out of curiosity, which Commodore was that that you got in the 80s? Commodore 64. That was the machine, 64, that was the machine. That was it in those days. That was it. When you were asked to go into the computer room, what I'm not trying to age you, but what year was that? That was 1989. All right. So in 1989, you, you wanted to work with computers and you maybe you had a direct path to the data center as a consequence of that, but I have a hard time. Did they refer to it as a data center back then? Oh, no, it was called a computer room. Right. And I still remember walking in and walking into the computer room. It was a Sperry, it was a Sperry Univac mainframe. Uh, and adjacent to that, there was this glass wall that you could look through and the ladies that were doing all the punch work and the punch cards and all that kind of stuff, that was called the data capture rule. And they were still using their punch techniques and all of that to capture the data for for the machines and the IT and the mainframes to do what they needed to do. So it was very much, think about what we have today. That was like Model T form stuff in those days. (laughs) Yeah, that was a point in time, actually, when the whole clean room reference started as well, not necessarily in the chip manufacturing, but computer rooms were referred to as clean I imagine rooms. some of our listeners probably think there were dinosaurs roaming around outside. It wasn't that long ago, but sometimes it feels like. Feels like... <laughs> well, the industry has grown so rapidly yeah. that it's just amazing, like where we started like 30 years ago to where we're at today. It's absolutely amazing. Was there a particular direction that you were seeking and you started learning more about technology and the innovation, therefore, was there a particular segment that you wanted to become a subject matter expert in or were you trying to get your arms around the entire lay of the land and be a generalist? Um, that was like that printer paper was your initial draw. Yeah, the carbon <laughs> in between the printer layers. There you go. Wow, yeah. that's a subject matter expert. If you smell it, it makes you lightheaded. It's perfect. It's perfect. I Love still, it. I still remember it well. I was very fascinated by the communication side of things, how things communicated to each other, the terminals. And in those days, it was dumb terminals and all that kind of stuff there. We didn't know what a land was. We had just had these terminals with controllers that ran with codex table. But I was fascinated about the fact that information could flow from somewhere to some place and be changed and then answers get sent back. And I wanted to be part of that communication piece. So when I was asked after my first 18 months as a trainee computer operator, I was approached by the guy who was head of the software department at that stage. 
on the mainframe side and he said to me, where do you see yourself going if you were to get a software field you wanted to get into? And I said, but I wanted to do the networking side. So he said, come and join us. And I then started learning about TAM and MCPs and all of that network control programs and how the mainframe communicated with everything else. And over those years, then we started learning about, there was someone guy who started talking about a LAN one day and I said, what the freaking hell is the land? Is there deem missing? It should be land or whatever the case may be. And the guy pulls out a computer and he says, this thing that looks like it doesn't, it's not a coax cable. It's an ethernet cable. And I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. And that's how you learn it. And started pulling all these things. Why like, is that telephone cable so big? Yeah. Why is that telephone cable? Why do you call it a gateway? Why does the computer have to connect to a gateway? And then you, it was some, the process of learning and, and growing my knowledge around network infrastructure gave me a very strong appreciation of what actually needed to be done to make the stuff work. And that fascinated me all of the time. But at the same time, like you said, I started studying and, and learning about the economics of IT and business cases and putting that together and strategy and operations. I was always drawn towards wanting to know more about the industry as a whole, even though I was finding myself specializing at that stage in the network side of the world. And I grew my knowledge because of that. And then on the other side of Y2K, once we squashed the bug, I jumped over the fence to what I used to refer to jokingly in those days as the thing on side of IT, which was Unix and firewalls and LDAP and all that kind of stuff. And I found myself in the world of the internet within a large financial institution in South Africa and then started developing web servers and interfaces and worked on Netscape. And it was just this continuous growth and understanding of the communication between people and devices was fascinating for me. And you could send an email to someone on the other side of the world and 15, 20 minutes later, they would respond and send something back to you. It's always been that wondrous, marvelous experience for myself. When I look and think about it, even today, I am amazed at what human imagination and we as people can actually accomplish when you think about all of this. And it works. It works. Every nanosecond of every day, this stuff just works. Well, it certainly that changed the life. what amazes me. Yeah, it certainly changed the life for everybody. One of the challenges that I constantly hear in our space is that IT is a cost center. Like you walking us through what you have gone through in your career and starting at the Unix level or starting foundation at the operational level of these. Starting at loading paper into the printers. And yeah. <laughs> And particularly being in banking, how has that changed? That's one question. Secondly, I can't even imagine, like, how would you go up to your senior leadership back in 2000 or before that and try to convince them that this is the future, that banking is going to transform, and the technology sector is going to transform, and you do need data centers? What was that experience like? You have the laggards that want to hold on to everything that is old and comfortable. And then you have the people 
out on front that of dragging everyone kicking and screaming and somewhere in between you have these that bring those two together. I found myself more often than not trying to be the interface between those who didn't want to go somewhere and those who wanted to take us somewhere. And that's where I found my niche. And it was making people understand and appreciate the challenges that they were dealing with today and how IT could enable them to do things differently and more efficiently and more effectively. Yeah, you're so right. Cost center. Oh my goodness. It was IT's nonprofit. You know, it's a cost bucket. Everything just gets flushed down the toilet once you put money in IT, all that kind of stuff. And my approach was always, what were you able to do 10 years ago that you can do better today because there's a screen in front of you with a key? What did it help you do? And Think of that five years or 10 years from now. And I said, think of the times that you used to kick against all of the things that were introduced to you. He said, I'm not going to do that. And today you do it like it's normal. And that was the approach that I always used to have when I used to speak to people in those days. And I used to have that facilitation role and collaboration role. I said, give it a, just give it a chance. Let's see where this goes. Just give yourself the opportunity to explore this thing and see how it could help. And if it doesn't help me in six months' time or whatever the case may be, hey, woe is me. Fall on my sword, my bad. We tried it, it didn't work. We move on, we go and do something else. But the one thing that I learned, Nabil, is that you cannot take anyone kicking and screaming into the future if they don't want to go. I always say the analogy of don't shine the light in their face and say, hey, stupid, what do you think you're doing? Take that flashlight and shine it down the road and let them see for themselves where this thing got so that they want to explore it with you and say, come with me on this journey. And that has always been my approach within the digital infrastructure role as a professional. It's a journey for all of us. And some of us, we're not as keen to explore it as others would be. And that's great because you need people on the back end to bring it up and sort of close the gate behind as everyone else is running forward. Etc. and making sure that's it. So cost center, yes. But I always regarded, and I still do, IT and digital is the enabler of this world for us to do things better and more efficiently, etc. And even though it costs money, that business case around it is usually sound because no one would spend the money if they didn't get something out of it at the end. Because otherwise, IT would have been dead a long time ago. Right. Money buys efficiency, right? Money buys yeah. productivity. Exactly. There's that benefit that comes as a result of it, but the benefit of it is not always immediate. So instant gratification is not necessarily the IT thing. There's a lag behind it. There's a lag on it. You invest now and you gain the benefits from it later. You don't always realize that investment that you did two or three years ago, or even five, six, seven, eight years ago, it's actually paying off right now. And I always try and remind people of that approach is give it a chance. Let's see where it goes. If it doesn't work, we can always change direction, but don't throw it out just because you don't think it's a good idea right now. We talk about so much in the podcast. I've talked about it in my career that psychology is 90% of what we do, but just trying to figure out how to communicate with people in a way that doesn't feel as though they're going to be disrupted. That doesn't feel as though they're being put in kind of an uncomfortable position and kind of allows them to like get on board. And it sounds like that's been your experience as well, that it's the communication of it that has been at the key of how you've been able to be successful. 
Correct. And for me, it's always been about collaboration, about bringing people along on the journey, about changing, helping them to change, to change their own minds and their own mindsets. Because I'm also set in my ways. I know that it's sometimes not easy for someone to change tech and change their mind around things. And there were those who tried to do it harshly with me. And then your back gets up and you just become this rigid person and you're defensive professional. And there are others that sort of look at you and show you something like my dad did. He didn't say you will become a computer programmer or whatever. He put that freaking Commodore 64 on my bed and just left it there. He didn't say a damn word. Curiosity <laughs> killed the cat. That, that experience <laughs> is what probably led to this entire, it's like a reverse. Like normally yeah. I anticipate with my children, they'll be talking to a therapist about all the different ways in which I screw them up. In your particular case, it looks like this one experience has led to like various ways that you've been successful, both in terms of where your career trajectory has gone and just understanding the psychology that it has introduced into you that you have now used in your career to try to leave breadcrumbs instead of shoving a baguette in someone's face. Correct. Exactly. And for me, that's always been the way that I like to do things. When Even when I come out of left field and sometimes I get accused of that get accused of it too many times, but it's about putting that idea on the table and just say, let's just talk about this. Let's just think about this. What's the harm in discussing it, for example, as opposed to, I think it's a stupid idea. It's not going to work, whatever. There are so many things that have happened in IT and in technology and in so many fields and disciplines, if you really think about it, just because one or two people together were prepared to have a discussion about it and not to reject it out of hand and say, well, that just sounds too far off the wall, that kind of thing. And that for me has always been a, the catalyst that drives me forward as well. And when you guys now talk about Nomad Futurist Foundation and the education side is having that discussion with our younger generation, just having a discussion, not saying you have to go and do this and all of that kind of stuff, but also sort of virtually planting that seed of putting that computer on someone's bed and say, well, just look at it. See what this is about. Consider the following. This is what we can show you for the time being. And then you can think about it yourself. Maybe you want to go into this field, et cetera. And it's exposing them to a line of thought and an approach that they probably never knew existed for them. I didn't. When that happened to me, I didn't even think about it. But it was just an avenue that was opened and somebody shone a light down the road. And I said, well, let's go and have a look and see what happens. Yeah, I think so there's something about your story in particular that is, is so in tune with like what some of the catalysts for us starting the foundation were all about. And it's about the timing and when you came of age and when you entered that room. The fact of the matter is that you were there in many cases in our careers, our generation, you were there when we were all learning together about yeah, what is the gateway. I mean, these days, if somebody came in just to learn how networking works or how the internet works, you take a lot of that kind of base level foundational knowledge for granted. It just works. Like just assume that it works. But the fact that you understand because you were there when somebody had to explain to you what a gateway was, like it used to be the machines communicated with machines in just the other room. And that yeah. was fascinating. And how do you get them out of that room? And what is a land? And then how does a land become a WAN? And how does a WAN become the internet? And all of these things. Mm-hmm. And you kind of saw that. And that fascination is, I think, what we're trying to capture in a bottle. 
because yeah. our generation was fascinated by it because it was so new and because it was new to everyone, it wasn't inherently scary. Yeah. Whereas this generation, they wake up, they born and the phone works, the internet works, infrastructure is just there and trying to like pull them back and be like, you don't understand, it didn't always work. So be fascinated by the fact that it's magic and it works, but it works because of these things that we put in place. And you should be really excited because these things are fascinating. And it's just like you said, the, the amazing element of the human mind that at work, like manifested it out of whole cloth. Yep. And that in and of itself is fascinating. And that's why people should be excited about this industry. Correct. Us trying to capture that fascination and bestow it upon the next generation so they can recognize that the thing for them, it hasn't even happened yet. Like it's so easy to see, like yeah. life was static and then life became dynamic when the internet you communicate in the world became like the Disney world, right? And it's a small world. We all just weren't able to communicate with each other. You could be in South Africa right now and it would be the exact same conversation. That yeah. is the magic of the internet. That was not possible when you walked into that process automation room. Um, Anyway, I'll shut up now, but that is fascinating. Yeah, I think your story is absolutely amazing. It kind of basically foundationally meets up with what we're trying to accomplish as well. We don't need to tell anybody to do something, but if you give them enough exposure and experience and awareness thereof, then probably might create that level of curiosity and interest that they want to pursue. And context. They're using and, and it context, every yeah. second of every day. Yeah. And they don't right. know it exists because we've never given them the tools to know that it exists. Yep. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Lee. The South African Defense Force. Talk to us a, a little bit about that. Was that something that was mandatory back in the day? Yeah. Was that something that you were forced to join? Yes, I didn't have a choice. As a white male in that South Africa, shall we call it, I didn't have a choice. I was a conscripted soldier. So I had to go and do my time. So I joined the South African Defense Force. I was in the South African Army. I was an infantry platoon sergeant, so a junior leader, as they would call it in those days. And then I was deployed to the then border of Southwest Africa as part of a battalion called 201 Battalion, which was a fairly elite battalion called the Bushman Battalion because it was basically the, the Khoisan, the real desert Bushman regiment that was part of that. And I was part of that group. And I did my two years as a platoon sergeant and deployed as that. When I was done, I was done. I sort of came to my senses during that time and realized that this doesn't work. This isn't. So, so you had, after a two-year tenure, you had the opportunity to walk well, away from it. Well, let's put it this way. I don't know if they arrest me for it today, but after two years, you still have another 10 years that you have to go back and do like call up for caps every once a year for at least a month or whatever the case may be. But when I left the South African army at that stage and I was honorably discharged, I became a conscientious objector. I said to myself, I'm never going back. I'm not feeding this animal again. I'm not part of this. This is not for me. I don't believe in it. It makes no sense to me. So I became a conscientious objector. For the next couple of years, they wanted me to go back to the camps and I would just even pitch up. So I don't think they ever wanted to arrest me because I was derelict in my duty, but I was learning tape reels and printer paper in those. I mean, you were busy on your route to making the world a better or productive player. Yeah. I was busy working on this digital miracle that we're working on today. 
But yeah, so that's where that comes from. So that was my time in the army. Now, if you would not have had the exposure of the VIC-64 and haven't had served in Defense Force, do you ever think about like what would life be or what would you have done differently if you didn't get the exposure? Not always, not really, because I have this philosophy and approach that things happen for a reason. And sometimes things don't happen for a reason. So you can always go back, what if, and all of that. And sometimes I do dwell, why did not I pick those six numbers correctly for the lottery draw? But they look so easy now, <laughs> numbers. Sometimes I dwell on that. But of course well, it was 27, it. of course. Who would have thought that one, two, and three would come up in the line this time? Why didn't I have to think of that for crying out? But so no, I try not to dwell on it. I sometimes find myself suffering as my daughter and my wife would say from analysis paralysis, but it's purely because of probably more about my training as a risk agent for the industry and looking at things from a risk perspective. But no, I try not to dwell on things that are decisions made. Sometimes in the past, I've had to deal with disappointing moments in my life where I like, oh my goodness, why in heaven's name didn't I get that job or that opportunity? And then two or three months later, something else comes along that's just flipping amazing. And then she sort of looked back and said, okay, okay, so that's why. It's very much yin and yang. I don't say it's necessarily a destiny thing because you can still make stupid decisions that you really, really try hard enough. But yeah, I'm comfortable with where my life has taken me and what it's brought me and all the people that I've been able to meet and work with for these years. I think it's a hard thing to learn. Something Nabil has taught me in this whole process is the concept of perspective, where you think that in a moment, something is so earth shatteringly important just to realize that the world will continue to turn, everything will continue to work out. And if you think something is bad, it could always have been worse. And it's amazing. It's true. And Emil's story is very heart-wrenching and heartwarming at the same time when he tells it. And I was fortunate and unfortunate that very, very early in my life, actually when I was in the army, I got a wake-up call and a close brush with death myself in the army where two days after my 21st birthday, and I'll never forget it, at runabout just before 8 o'clock in the morning, my vehicle when we were in deployed, at that stage in the war theater, drove over a mine and blown up. And I was injured, but I was, had it happened 30 seconds before, the chances are I would have been dead today. But I got myself into the vehicle in such a way that I was actually protected when it drove over the tank mine. But at that moment or during that time, I realized how fleeting life can be, how quickly things can change for anyone and everyone. And it taught me to appreciate things a little bit more and make a little bit more directed decisions as well, which is why when I got out of the army and I went for that first job interview and there was something that I didn't necessarily like about what I would be doing, even though the money was good, I asked the other question and said, is there something else? And I think today, looking back, had I not asked that question, I don't know where I would be today, but I don't think I would be as happy and as content and passionate about what I do had I not asked that first question and just decided to change tack at that stage. Because I don't work a day in my life, to be honest, because I love what I do. 
And they always say, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I don't work. For me, this is just everything and anything on a daily basis. This is life. And that's a great point. Once you find your passion, it becomes muscle memory and you're okay with doing yeah. it as much or as little, right? It just becomes a part of the DNA. I never knew that about you, Lee. So thank you for sharing that personal story. No one knows that. So they're going to be finding out there. Everyone's going to be finding out. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. The way I'm experiencing this right now is that that was certainly one of those life-changing experiences in your life that gave you the willpower, the determination, and that commitment that, okay, there's a better way of doing things and I want to find my passion and I want to be decisive. Would you say that's the right statement? Yeah. It was also a wake-up call for me to realize that life is short. It can be short. Things can change in an instant. And some of us get out the other side through experiences like that. And we're okay. We survive it. We're better for it. Some of us don't. And that is why I also have a tremendous amount of respect for any military veteran or anyone who's in the military. It doesn't matter whether you are conscripted or whether you are a professional, because it's a decision that is not necessarily made lightly. And like with anything else, that you do in your life, there are consequences. And sometimes those consequences can be severe and sometimes they're great, but it just teaches you to appreciate to which you are exposed uh, and embrace it as best you possibly can at any given time. And of course, deal with the risk. Stay away from the risk as much as possible. No one likes to get shot at and sure as hell, no one likes to get blown up or whatever the case may be. But if and when that happens, if you're able to get through it on the other side, Try and take that experience and make it better for yourself. And more importantly, try and make it better for other people as a result, because you're here for a reason and you're not done. Absolutely. Switching subjects just for a second over here. So I see that you're very passionate about education. You're very passionate about standards. How did that transition come along? Being a technologist, I constantly see you wanting to be a part of paying it forward, providing tools, resources, and educational material. I guess on that case, it's where I come from. The African continent, it's not an easy place. We have a saying from there, Africa is not for warps. You've got to be able to step up and do things. And it hasn't always been easy. And it's not always easy for people to be exposed to opportunities for education and knowledge growth, etc. And not always in the field that you would like to study. So it's not always about having the capability, it's having the opportunity. And sometimes you can have all of the capability in the world to become a nuclear physicist or a rocket scientist or whatever the case may be. But if no one ever offers you the opportunity to be able to study in that direction and then being exposed to the educational part that can teach you those things so you can actually become that, no one will ever know. And When it comes to education, specifically within the digital infrastructure environment, for crying out loud, we're sitting on a platform that's called the internet, the World Wide Web, as we call it. It is literally worldwide. Everyone has access, not everyone, but many have access to this today through something as simple as a phone or a tablet or whatever the case may be. And offering that opportunity to people to learn something new, to be able to grasp the concept through whatever means you can, whether it's a video or somebody talking to you on a call or anything like that, for me is, that's first prize. 
That's first prize. Imagine not having access to those things today. The things that you and I, what we're doing right now is we think this is normal. We can probably go to places in the world where people would look at this right now and they would go insane because for them it is unthinkable to actually... Well, I mean, not to cut you off right here, but two years ago or three years ago, this was not normal. But that just shows you how adaptable we are as human beings and as a species. We are able to change tech because of necessity. I always say people change for one of two reasons. You either see the light or you feel the pain. There's usually nothing in between. So, and I like to be the one that sees the light. I don't like changing because it hurts. I like changing because, yeah, that's a good idea. That's something worth looking at. Because usually when you change by feeling the pain, it's too late. There's already been a consequence as a result of it. And education, for me, is the gateway to anything and everything. What I am today and my interactions with anybody and everybody in this industry around the world, it is a path of education. And sometimes that education was informal. I don't have a formal education. I don't have it. Most of the time it was informal. Most of your education, most of all of our education at a certain age is informal, right? You're not going to be in school for the rest of your life, right? If anything. A forever student and asking people for help and people telling me how things work and explaining and me transferring that knowledge. And for me, the value of that and what I've gained as a result of it is something that I cannot not share with others. That would be so wrong. And that's why when guys like yourself come along and you put a foundation together where we are going to educate those who are, are less privileged lack of a better phrase, we don't have access to these things because it costs money. I'm willing to give my time for that and I'm willing to share some of my knowledge and provide that opportunity to someone because we could be touching the lives of so many that don't have that opportunity. And for me, this is just, it's normal for me. It's just a normal thing. Uh, well, we are certainly very thankful and appreciative of the fact that you've joined us as one of our ambassadors and leading, oh, helping us lead educational initiatives. I'm happy and proud to do so. Really. And, and what a story. Africa, in my opinion, is the last frontier of technology and connectivity. The way I look at it, we haven't actually even broken ice yet. It's just the beginning of time and technology. Granted, what you did at the Unix level, and, and like Phil said, it, what was it, Phil, the carbon paper? It smelled lovely. Yeah, it smelled lovely. Where do you think potential growth areas are for the next generation as Africa comes to life as it entails to technology over the next three to five years? What are some of the areas that people that are listening to this podcast should be focusing on in the emerging markets? Emerging markets, it's expansion of digital infrastructure. And by that, when you look at the African continent as a whole, there's 650 million people there, younger than 35 years. The number of people between 18 and 35 on Africa is more than any other continent across the world. So the opportunity and the potential is huge. It's massive. So exposing them to that, but also the way that you are going to develop and deploy digital infrastructure on the African continent requires a different approach than what you would do it, for example, here in North America, in Europe, parts of Asia, 
it's a different environment. So you got to think about it differently. Your challenges are not the same. There are so many aspects that come into play. But at the same time, that presents us with so much opportunity to be able to think and approach things differently. And for me, it's about people on the African continent being able to use their imagination to overcome this. If you look at what has been done on the African continent, just from a digital infrastructure perspective over the last 15 years, in terms of where we come from and what we are able to do now, how many data center companies have actually gone into Africa now, picked up assets in all parts of Africa with regard to the growth, the opportunity that has been given, the excitement that is around these things. And it's that approach and that openness that you should that we need to we need to engender and foster within the people as well. And yes, it's like you say, it is the last frontier. It's the untapped continent of the world. But I truly believe that in the next 10 to 20 years, it's going to be a complete transformed continent when it comes to that, purely because of what digital does for us. Right. And hopefully you have the African subcontinent has gone through a lot of, I don't have to tell you, right? The stuff you forgot is more than stuff than anything I've ever known. But in terms of the colonialism and other countries taking over, what we don't want is we don't want an industry from, let's say, the U.S. or Europe to kind of just leverage that opportunity for their own benefit. You want to make right. sure that you're doing it in a way, given the challenges, given the logistical elements of it, given the specific regional and cultural elements of, of all over Africa, you want to make sure that you're empowering the people to really benefit so that you can bring Africa into the same conversation that you have with Europe and the West. Correct. And we have a, it's called Ubuntu and it's not just. The, it's also a flavor of Linux. <laughs> it's not a form of Linux. There was Ubuntu long before that name was taken and use for that. And it's about we together, together we thrive, together we grow. You have to be selfless in order to be able to, because if you don't share, there's no benefit. There is no benefit. You have to be in that place where you can share, where you can, you can pay it forward. You can give to others that which you did not have, but that which you have now. Because if you don't, there is no point. You can't grow. You can't change someone else's mind and influence them to be able to do the same in the future as well. If no one shared with me what they knew and what they had in the past, I would probably be a lot less likely to share that which I have today because of the way that I was treated. And if you don't, you've got to pay it forward. And the culture of Ubuntu makes people understand that we're all in this together. You know, if you're going to do stupid things all your life, then you're going to impact the world in a stupid and an unproductive way. If you do things the opposite, the opposite is true. The outcome is different. And it's the same that what you guys are doing. You saw a gap, you saw a need, and you're pursuing that. And there are many of us, around one or what, 20-odd, if not 30-odd ambassadors now, part of Nomad Futurist, who see the same thing and want to be a part of it because we believe in it. It's that principle of you see it, it makes sense, you want to contribute, and therefore you do. And I think it's going to transform Africa's digital environment immensely over the next 
10 to 20 years and then after that as well. But the key is the youth and giving them access and opportunity to learn what it is that we already know as, as old fogies, but they need to now see and understand that so that they can take this torch from us and, and run with it. I was going to get offended that you referred to me as an old fogey, but what I wear is a badge of honor. Hey, bud. It's, it's a... <laughs> you hide it quite well, Phil. Yes, it's, it's thank you. Having this hairline since I was like 23 years old helps. <laughs> it's not a progressive hairline, it's a progressive forehead. Oh, <laughs> yeah. there you go. Glass is half full. And, uh, Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and sharing your story. This was amazing. This is the fun part of the podcast and the initiative that we get to know people personally, even though we have actually known him for a long time, things do come out as we open the kimono. So usually you. people with fascinating Perfect. accents aren't actually fascinating. I think you're the one exception that disproves the rule. I mean, you, you've done the accent the, justice. The New Yorker had to show up. It's amazing. Yeah, amazing. Broken like a guy from New Jersey. I have to imagine that all of our listeners are now going to kick to the curb the other famous South African technologist, Mr. Musk, and now know that the future is in good hands. It will be Smith. If you say so, I just got to get those six numbers sorted then. I can't right. We know that one, two, three, and 27. That we know. <laughs> we need one more. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Very good, Lee. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.